The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Chapter 50 A Heavy Burden The Court Mr. Parkinson Mr. Parkinson Thank you, Your Honor Mr. Danner, Counsel for the Defense Just what you want to hear Another lawyer talk, right? Well, as usual in this trial I get to go last. The reason we go last, you have already been told. And I will attempt to keep my remarks brief and cover the areas that Mr. Stone and Miss McMillan talked about. But the reason that we do go last, as you have been told throughout this trial, is the state has a very heavy burden which we accept. It is a burden beyond a reasonable doubt to prove that this defendant committed these horrible, horrible crimes. We accept that, because that is the way our system works, and that is the way it should work. But because we have the burden, we get one less shot at you to try to argue the merits of our case. And unlike Miss McMillan's comments, which I made a few notes of, I am going to try to confine my comments to what the evidence was, and of course, you will make the reasonable inferences from what you heard. But it is not often that I stand up here and pick on another attorney, but I quite frankly am offended. Not myself, before the state. Offended at some of the insinuations that Miss McMillan brought out in her statements a few minutes ago. I won't point them all out, but a few of them just weren't in the evidence. I don't know what trial she was at, but she wants you to make a reasonable conclusion from the evidence. So she says, and yet she talks about things that clearly were never supported by the evidence. And I will get into those. You know, in all of our lives, we have people, I think, that we remember and look up to. And there is someone. And somehow throughout your life, this person may have said something to you and it stuck in your mind. Maybe they were your hero in your family or your work. And to me, that was my grandmother. And when I was a little boy, I would spend my summers with my grandparents. And my grandmother said something to me. We would talk when I was 10, 11 years old. And I would say... I read that there is seven wonders in the world. And she said, no, there are eight. And I said, what do you mean eight? I just read it in a book. 
there's seven wonders in the world. And I was all ready to rattle them off, and I did. And she said, no, the eighth wonder is getting people to serve on a jury. And this was way before I ever thought of becoming a lawyer. Later on, I decided to become a lawyer. And every once in a while, I think of that. And we sometimes forget about the job that you people put in here. Four weeks. Four weeks out of your lives that we have asked you to do something that, quite frankly, I don't know that some of us would have or would have done. You didn't volunteer for it. You were called in here. And we went through a process of four days and 61 people to arrive at you people. Not because we thought you would be pro-prosecution or you would just bend over backwards to help us guys. And not because you, you know, you just look like you wanted to be here. That wasn't it. I don't think any of you want to be here. But it is because through questions by the judge, through questions by both of these tables, we all agree that you have got one common trait, and that is you're going to be fair. And you're going to base your decisions upon evidence. Not whether you like them better, or maybe you don't like me, or you think that they are better lawyers in their delivery. None of that. None of that really matters. When you go back there, it doesn't matter which lawyers you like the best or detest the most. It is what did the evidence show, and you all have that trait, and I congratulate you on that. I won't forget you. When I get done with this trial, I'm going to go back to Springfield and go to some other county, so I won't be back. Don and Justine won't be back either, and that's because of what this coward killer over here did in the early morning hours of January 13th. And I say that, both that he is a coward and a killer, because of the evidence that we heard here for three weeks. Now the defense stands up here a few minutes ago and pretends that they just want you to follow the evidence. So what do they then do? They cast apprehensions upon the state's efforts, that we manipulated the evidence, that we made it fit him and ran away from David Haynes. She even told you, a few minutes ago, that when we quit looking and focusing on our chief suspect, David Haynes. You never heard one word of that ever except from her. She stands up here and says, if I say anything that doesn't fit with the evidence, go with the evidence. Well, please do. Never heard chief suspect or even suspect. You know when, when you heard suspect? On the auto rads and on the blood standards. You heard people talking about other male suspects. That is the term law enforcement uses. You know why? Because there were. There was Rod Franciscovich with whom Donna had an ongoing relationship. It was a developing and solid one. You had Terry Haynes, whom she dated in September and October, and maybe even as early as August. Not at the same time that she was dating Rod Franciscovich. We had John Tompkins, the estranged husband. They are going through a divorce. This couple married, and it didn't work out. They had a beautiful daughter named Justine. They both thought the world of her. John still kept contact with Justine. Donna and he got along fine, even arranged for the meeting at McDonald's. The next night that never did get to occur for Justine, something that Justine liked. We have David Haynes, who was her employer. So we have four men who have some contact with her. What is significant about that? Those four men, upon the very first asking by the police to help solve this horrible, heinous crime on these two innocent people, were asked, Will you submit to blood standards? Would you mind doing that? 
not a hesitation from any of them. All four voluntarily gave blood standards. Why were they asked to? Because in the autopsy something that was recovered was a swab, more than one, but some swabs from the vaginal vault of Donna Tompkins. And when it was tested by the lab, aha, presence of sperm, a goodly amount. Fresh sample of sperm, heads and tails intact, recent sperm. So they asked these four men, would you do so? They asked five men, didn't they? The suspect over here, I got to go shoot pool and drink or something, but I'll do it tomorrow. Next day, officer goes to his place of work, I think about 3.30, correct me if I am wrong, an hour before he gets off and reminds him and says, okay, this is the next day. Are you going to meet us and give us the blood standard? Yeah, I'll meet you there after work. They wait. They wait. He doesn't show up. When does he get give his blood standard? When there is a court order entered weeks and months later. That's why they were called suspects, those other four, who were quickly eliminated by a scientific process. Not by manipulation of the prosecution, not by manipulation of the police, but by science and by retracing their activities. So I am offended by that. She wants you to listen to the evidence. Go with the evidence, okay? You know what? They fight like crazy about this DNA. They even bring an Ostrowski here who does a little song and dance, a shameful display of insulting your own intelligence. He doesn't go with the evidence, Autorads, does he? No. They pick out a couple of Autorads that aren't even in the same focus, which I hope you saw yesterday. And he quickly, to the insult of your own intelligence, puts it on here and says, well, here is the open profile. Here is Donna. Here is the other four guys. And then I have got Donald Bowles over here. Yes, this top one matches up. And he goes down to the pin. See this bottom one? It doesn't match up. Off it goes. You won't see it because the defendant's autorads aren't in the evidence. Not those two. He wants to make a comparison so that he can trick you into thinking there is no match. So we have to ask you people to stay around another day and we bring back Mr. Frank. Sure he is a scientist for the state, but he testified on, he testified on science. And I hope he explained to us all in a language that we all finally understand when he did. When he did his counting, and I am sorry if I use words like, it looks like a ladder or a rung. I must have looked like I flunked a chemistry test when I tried to get through that. But eventually we did. But DNA is very confusing. But it's made a lot clearer to all of us, I think, because Mr. Frank took those same two autorads that they wanted to sell you like a can of snake oil and insult your intelligence. And then he did a count for you up on the screen and showed you that the open profile, which was had from the beginning, from the vaginal swab from the that had Donna on it, and some suspect yet undetermined, and you saw where those bands fell with regard to those markers. Just under 6 and just under 18, you could count down the ladder of 30, and you can see that it did match. So there isn't any question about a match. They call Mr. Ostrowski, Dr. Ostrowski, who has never done one DNA analysis in his entire life, to come in and try to sell you a bill of goods that there is no match. And then when they see that doesn't work, what do they then say today? He had sex with her. Doesn't prove anything. What does their science say? Well, just because he had sex with her doesn't mean he murdered her. What kind of a scientific answer is that? Did you hear Mr. Frank say that? Did you hear Mr. Metzger say that? No. 
And then they try to stretch this as close as possible or squeeze it in as close as possible to the time of death so that they can explain, try to make you buy the fact that Mr. Bull's DNA from his sperm is in Donna's body and it was recently deposited as recently as Monday morning before. They tried to get real close to that 48 hours. Well, in the first place, Ginny Hahn, who did the microscopic examination of the sperm, tells you that, first of all, she sees sperm with heads. And then I think she said, and an equal amount of sperm intact with heads and tails. And she told you how in breaking down the process, the tails go first. But she even found an equal number, an equal amount of intact sperm. And that to her was significant because it is fresh. But at the outside possibility could be 48 hours. So it just so happens that they have to stand up now and tell you Sunday night or Monday morning. He even mentions the Mike Price in his letter. He didn't say that in his letter. Read the letter. You heard it read to you today. I think the letter says, Yeah, I had sex there, but it was Saturday night or Sunday. But no, she, who just wants you to follow the evidence, says Mr. Bull had sex with her Saturday night, Sunday night, or early Sunday morning. Where on earth did you hear any evidence of that? They know they can't get around science. That's all. So they have to give you this, this fantasy tale, so hopefully you'll buy it. The DNA. One in 3.8 billion is the possibilities that this DNA is someone else's. One in 3.8 billion. Or if you use the approach, the modified ceiling approach, which gives all the breaks to the defendants, it is one in 210 million. Do you remember the testimony of Mr. Metzger that we all have different DNA except for identical twins? Well, there's only five to six billion people on earth. And the odds that this DNA is someone else's, other than Mr. Bull's, is 1 in 3.8 billion. So he shouldn't have anything to fear of DNA unless he's got an evil identical twin lurking out there somewhere. Science points to Mr. Bull. His own statements point to Mr. Bull. They make light of the fact that we got these low lives, I think we called them and put them close so they could cozy up to Mr. Bull to see what he would say. Well, what did he say? What is important about what he told those people, Chris Chester? They said Chris Chester, ignore him. But all they talked about is Mr. Chris Chester. I think Mr. Stone says the state's whole case rests upon Chris Chester. She talks about Chris Chester. They want you to ignore him. They can't get around Chris Chester because he knew details. Details. They can't get around Harold Crozer because he knew details. And questions that this guy asked him about DNA. What is it? Genetic fingerprint. When did he ask him about it? When they're watching a TV show about DNA. Up to that point, he never had said anything about having sex with Donna Tompkins. And he didn't have sex with Donna Tompkins. This is part of his... This is part of his braggadocio. He has got to tell his buddies. Now, uh-oh. They took my blood sample a month ago, June 16th, by court order. Now it is July. I have got to write to my good buddy Mike Price and put some juicy language in there about our relationship that we had. I got to tell Harold Crozer now that, yeah, we had sex. And he has got to find out, through his own efforts, how long can semen possibly live. 
how long can sperm live? And he wants. He even asks Ostrowski, the numbers guy, who doesn't tell you anything about numbers, but comes here from North Carolina, the population and geneticist, doesn't tell you anything about numbers, except five to six days it might live. So he has got to get himself in that window. So now he starts talking to people and explaining that he had sex with Donna Tompkins because he knows DNA is going to get him. That's why. And they make light of the fact that David Nell, who was a Friday witness and then a Monday witness, why he didn't tell the cops anything for a year when they questioned him. He tells him about the language and the pointing to the house of Donald Tompkins in the early morning hours just before their deaths, just before he went back and killed them. He doesn't tell anybody about that. What is so unusual about that? If it were up to him, he wouldn't have told you that now. He wouldn't have told it to this hotshot ATF investigator that Mr. Stone calls him, except they knew he was lying. So they want you to think that it is okay, on the one hand, put a wire on these guys. I mean, again, they insult your intelligence. Why didn't they put a wire on Chris Chester? All sorts of things that aren't in evidence. The propriety of it, or how do you do it, or how you violate someone's rights. They don't tell you about that. They say if Chris Chester was telling the truth, they should have put a wire on him. Then somehow they complain about this so-called hotshot ATF investigator who comes in and tells David Nell, after a few bouts with the police, he says, look, we know you know more and you're not telling us. And so they lean in his face and say, in effect, David Nell, you are his good buddy. You're with him. You were with him at the card party. He took you home. You have known him since kindergarten. You are his best friend. You're not telling us everything. Now they didn't put the details in his mouth. He then told them what he told them. And you heard, he pointed to the house and what would he have liked to do with Donna? Not once, but on the trip back again as they were cruising, drinking some more beer to get to their 18 to 20 for the night. Details. Chris Chester had details. I don't think I will ever forget Chris Chester as he sat up there, as he looked him in the eye, as he described for you this motion that he put on Donna Tompkins. And he heard the little girl and went back and did the same thing to her, threw an ashtray on the bed to make it look like an accident. Details. They say, well, Mr. Stone shows you the Miranda warning thing that Mr. Bull initialed and that he didn't tell police anything because he doesn't trust the police. So he wouldn't tell them that he ever had sex with Donna. That's what he said. I suppose the converse of that would be, well, because he trusted Chris Chester and he trusted Harold Crozer and he trusted Mike Price. He did tell them. A few of the other things that they talked to you about, they try to indicate that since they can't get around the DNA, they have to put, make up some relationship that occurred, and that Mr. Bull had sex with Donna. We have accounted for Donna's whereabouts from about Thursday night, Friday morning on. Thursday night, Friday morning, she is at Rod Franciscovich's house. I think that morning, Friday morning, she left for work. She gave him a key. First time that he let himself in, then on Monday night, when he got off work at Peoria when he came back late. This is the ongoing relationship that she had with Rod and she gave him a key only Friday before. Okay, Saturday night, they go to Rod's house. They cook some steaks, I think. She spends the night. 
She gets up early enough to be home to receive Justine back when John is going to bring her back into town. That is Saturday night. Sunday morning, she goes to church with Justine. After church, she stops by in the early afternoon to Rod's place with Justine. She arranges for a babysitter Sunday night so that she could work the Kmart Christmas party at the Elks. Works there from her paycheck she got and the recollection of people there to 12 or 1 a.m. Monday night, Rod comes by. They have some sexual relations between Monday night and Tuesday morning. And by the way, not to go into the details again, but you recall the testimony of Rod Franciscovich. Do you remember there were other swabs that were done? It wasn't just from the vaginal area. There were tracheal. There were oral. There were other swabs. Wasn't any sperm found anywhere that belonged to Rod Franciscovich. The charred key fob, or whatever you call that thing that was found. The key thing that John said was the one that she normally used matched up. Take the key and see what might be missing from that. Take the key that Rod had given to him by Donna and look at that charred key fob. The ring. The ring. We should have quit with the sisters. If anybody knows whose ring that was, Susan and Anne knew it was the ring. I think Susan is the one that, quite frankly, is very attentive to it. She had the thing about don't sleep with your jewelry on. There isn't any doubt that this is the ring. You can get into a discussion. Was it an opal? Did it look like an opal? But what significance is that? The people that knew her identified that ring without any question. And that is the ring that was found in his belongings at Rochelle's house on March the 29th, 1993. That is the same ring that he told Harold Crozer, another detail that they don't want you to believe. Don't believe Harold Crozer. But how did he know about his concern about a ring at his ex-girlfriend's house, Rochelle, that he was concerned about? It is that ring, 62, the white stone ring. That was Donna's ring. Mr. Stone says, well, that is silly about why would he take that ring. Why wouldn't he take the signet ring? Well, signet rings have initials on them, I think, and they are not as unique looking and valuable. I think Mr. Stone said killers don't believe they will get caught. You're right, Mr. Stone. Killers don't believe they will get caught. That is why this killer said to Joanne Wright, I know how to kill someone and not get caught. Said that a short time after he killed these two people. He didn't have sexual relations with Donna other than the night he raped her, January 13th, 1993. This was the sexual relationship that Mr. Bull had with Donna Tompkins. This is the only time. And that's why he didn't say to David Nell, his good friend since kindergarten, as he drove by, as he drove the car, drove by twice, once north and once south, pointing at that house to the lady to whom he had delivered a couch some months before, that he would like to do that with her. Not that he would like to do that again, but I would sure like to do it with her. What a thing to say to your best friend since kindergarten, unless it was going to be your first time. So after a night of winning 57 bucks at cards, drinking 20 beers, cruising around with his buddy, after a night of that, and a rape and murder of two innocent people, the phone rings shortly after 9. David Haynes, who they want you to think was the chief suspect and is the murderer, he goes to check on her, but first he calls. People at work told him Donna didn't show up. The ATM money didn't come in. Hazel Brown says she didn't show up. 
Several people are concerned. Donna didn't show up. People other than David Hain, before he even left to go check on her, had already checked on whether Justine was at the daycare. So concern is developing by other people, and it is suggested to David Haynes to go check on Donna. And one thing he does is call. The telephone is just inside the front door, this front door that she calls from about a hundred times. She says the front door to this house sits out toward the street. Look at the photos. Look at the aerials. I don't know why she said that six times a half hour ago. She wants to make you think this is close. This is something that you would have to go right out this front door and be seen by someone driving around the street. Look at the house. Look to see where the door, the only door to Donna's apartment is. It is on the side, over here where the trees and shrubs are. Trees and shrubs you pass on the way back to the car. That's where the door is. Railroad tracks, trees, shrubs, house. Not out there in the front like they think it is part of a bus stop or something. But David Haynes, on urging of the people at the bank for concern for Donna, dials the phone. Who was in there? And who heard it? And who didn't? Well, we know who didn't, because Donna and Justine were already dead. But we know who did. We know who did. Who had to then make his escape after his night of drinking, cards, murdering? Who had to make his way out the side, sitting right there? You know that accelerant was poured mainly in two places, right on the bodies on the daybed, or the roll away or whatever, the couch bed, poured on the bodies of these two people to make it look like an accident. And the other place was over here by the front door on the sewing table where the phone was. The two places that was poured were those two places. So altogether, it may seem strange to you, murder and rape and killing of innocent people is a strange thing. And what people do cannot always fit with logic. But after a night of 18 to 20 beers and card playing and winning and rape and carrying out the statement he just made to David Nell, meeting resistance, and then killing a little girl whom he heard in the back and did the same thing to her, he at some point had to make his departure, and he did. And why is that important? Because when did he get home? When he arrives home between 9.30 and 10 from the people who were already there, Misty Pratt, Rochelle's girlfriend, and Jackie Day, he comes in. And it is about then, or shortly thereafter, that these sirens are heard. He just happened to show up four blocks away from the crime scene, after this fire redeveloped into its, into its final stage. They make a big deal about David Haynes, when he gets there, and he was sent. It was suggested that he go. They make a big deal about him calling the police department, not the fire department. Am I somehow missing something because when he called, and you heard it there at 9.31 and 56 seconds... Why was he supposed to call the fire department? He is up in Pauline Newcomb's apartment, isn't he? I am missing why he is supposed to call the fire department. It was after that as he makes his wellness check, telling them, Get somebody down here. My secretary didn't show up for work. I am concerned. Her car is parked here, and she is not there. Is he supposed to... I suppose you would call the fire department. You already heard the fire department and the police department are in one building in Canton. But he calls to what they call as a wellness check. I don't understand why he is supposed to call the fire department. And that's what they insinuate. Cause of death. I won't belabor this. We have experts that are called to talk to you about something within their own field that help us better understand things that we are not familiar with. 
and it would have been wonderful for the state if Dr. Murphy, if we could have coached him and manipulated him like we did all of our evidence here. As they say, to fit our case, Why in the world didn't we have Dr. Murphy come in here and say steadfastly, they definitely were strangled, they definitely were smothered, and I found some evidence of it, and this and this and this it is, and I can stake my 19 years as a pathologist on that very fact, because the killer in this case tried to disguise the killings. Two of the counts you're asked to pass upon are concealment of a homicidal death. I'm not going to wave those photos in front of you, but please look at them again. The condition of these bodies has been described as charred, and it was horrible, and there was accelerant, 4th degree burns, and accelerant about the areas that would have disclosed some of these things that Dr. Jones wants you to think ought to be there. Look at the facial views of these autopsy photos, and see where in the world you would find bite marks on the inner lips or on the tongue. Where would these be? The condition of these bodies was made in such condition by Mr. Bull, so that it wouldn't be discovered so that when he told Joanne Wright a couple months later, you know, at the bar when she was with Kim Hammond, I think her name was, I know how to kill people and not get caught. You kill them, and then you pour this accelerant on them. You burn away the evidence. So it would have been wonderful for us to have Dr. Murphy state empathetically, beyond anything, that that was the cause of death. What did he tell you empathetically? 100% sure that they were dead before the fire. His initial report even says, quote, as they try to tell you he couldn't tell, what did he say? Fourth degree burns on bodies. Fourth degree burns on bodies found in residential fire, with no indications that they died in the fire. None. He put that down. No indications. And what were some of those indications? No soot. He didn't just say no soot in the trachea. He said not one speck of soot. He would have found some of that inside like the outside of the body looked. When you see the chest cavities in the autopsy pictures, they are tan in the picture. They are not deep cherry red as Mr. Danner pointed out. You look at the evidence. Dr. Murphy told you that most likely the cause of death was asphyxiation by either strangulation or smothering. The pillow of Justine was found behind the bed. The bodies were, Justine's body was placed next to her mother to make it look like they went to sleep. And she died smoking in bed, I guess. And then along came Jones, our Dr. Jones, smooth-talking, fast-talking Jones, definitely opinion, who only looked at 16 Kodachromes and an autopsy report, didn't talk to police, didn't initiate an investigation like she says she's good at, and she's very definite. They took a couple of breaths and died as a result of the fire. They were alive when the fire started. That is her definite opinion to you. Well, you're asked to keep an open mind. Both sides want you to do that. We don't want it so open that your brain falls out. And that's what she wants. She thinks you're useless here. Your job is to determine that. If that's true, if they were alive and breathing air as the fire started, who poured the accelerant? Who poured the gasoline and ethyl alcohol on them? I mean, did they just kind of, here, I will have a drink and pour some on you too? Who did it? What did they just, what? Did they just lie there? And look at Donna's position at the end of that daybed. And that is the position she was found in. Ask yourself where Donna Bull had just been to leave her that way. The consensual sex that they bring Dr. Ostrowski to kind of throw at you 
They might have had consensual sex, yeah. She is left that way. Mr. Bull did it. Mr. Bull did it. The trial is like a train. Some trains leave their place with few passengers. They zip to their destination. They are alive. People get off. Other trains go along and pick up. They go slower. They pick up things. Cargo. They chug along. They eventually get there. That is what we have done. We chug along. And you are about ready for me to sit down and be quiet. The train in this case picked up the puzzles. The puzzle pieces that Mr. Danner referred to. There is some witnesses. There is DNA. There is inconsistent statements and lies by the defendant. There is all sorts of evidence that was picked up along the way until we finally made up our case. We didn't jump to any conclusions and jump away from David Haynes and jump on him. I ask yourself to look at those autorads back there and look at the photos and look at the position that Donald Tompkins was left in and you will come to the conclusion that that's right that this defendant raped Donna, murdered her, and when he heard the little girl Justine, he did the same thing to her. And then that wasn't enough. He had to make his getaway, so he poured the ethyl alcohol and some gasoline. And she says no containers. Look in the pictures with the whiskey bottles that's broken there on the bed. You can see parts of it. You heard testimony about it. No container? It's there. Now finally, as I said, you have got a tough job, and you have to get back and do it. And I, my job will be done in about two minutes, and I can sit down and put it on your shoulders. I again want to thank you much for the attentiveness you have given us over the last several weeks. And you know, I never had the pleasure of knowing these two people, and they are gone. But I was thinking earlier that John, John and Donna had a very beautiful little girl, and they chose to name her Justine. I looked that up. I looked that word up, I looked that word up, Justine, and I found what its meaning was. But even more than that, if you just change one letter in her name, you have justice. And although we didn't bring Donna and Justine back, and nothing I can do or the family can do, nothing the court can do, but the one thing that they deserve even in death, they do deserve this. They deserve something only you can give them. And that is justice. And I trust that you will do that. Thank you. April 11th, 1996. Headlines across the state of Illinois read, Bull guilty of seven counts of murder. Judge will make death penalty decision. Carthage. After two and a half weeks of testimony and more than 80 witnesses, it took a Hancock County jury two hours to find Donald Bull Jr. guilty of murder in the January 1993 deaths of a mother and daughter in Canton. The jury was charged with the case at 4.20 p.m. after more than five hours of closing arguments Wednesday. A verdict was reached by 6.20 p.m. Bull showed no emotion during the reading of the verdict, as friends and family members of the victims 
Donna and Justine Tompkins wept in the courtroom. Bull muttered, not guilty, to reporters as he was led from the courthouse. A sentencing hearing is scheduled for 10 a.m. May 7th. Bull waived his rights to a jury for the sentencing. Meanwhile, Judge William Henderson will decide whether or not to impose the death penalty. Bull, 33, was convicted of strangling or smothering Donna Tompkins, 30, and her daughter, Justine, 3. The murders occurred the morning of January 13, 1993, just before Bull set fire to the victim's Canton apartment to cover the crimes the jury found. He was found guilty of seven counts of first-degree murder, one count of aggravated arson, and two counts of concealment of a homicidal death. Prosecutors, police officials, and family members were relieved by the outcome. I'm very appreciative of the verdict reached by the jury, said Fulton County State's Attorney Ed Danner. The Amicucci family would really like to profess its profound gratitude to all the persons involved in this case, said Donald Amicucci, Donna Tompkins' father. But Amicucci said the decision did not end the pain. The losses are irretrievable. Two lives are gone forever, he said. Their right to be part of life, to enjoy the basic benefits of life, that's been denied to them for eternity. And no one has the right to do that to them. For that, we will grieve eternally. John Tompkins, Justine's father and the estranged husband of Donna, said he was glad the trial was over, especially since he was the original suspect. I'm very satisfied. It's been a hell ride, he said. Defense attorney Dean Stone said, We're obviously disappointed. I don't think the state proved beyond a reasonable doubt. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic. Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman, audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrisimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.